I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Social equality and social justice does actually ultimately become a national security issue because the more people are marginalised or feel isolated from their systems of government, whether that be due to a lack of transparency as to what national security agencies are up to or because they don't see people like them making those laws, for whatever the reason, uh, then you do get people who feel isolated from the country and that creates social risks. Social cohesion creates national security risks. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, we bring you the ninth instalment of the Women in National Security miniseries, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by Dr. Danielle Ireland-Piper, Associate Professor here at the college. They explore whether legislation is keeping up with contemporary human rights issues arising from the exploration of space as well as the delicate balance between national security secrecy and the need for transparency. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to the Women in National Security podcast. I'm Gay Brotman. And I'm Meg Tapia. And it's great that you've joined us for today's fascinating conversation with Dr. Danielle Ireland-Piper. Danielle is Associate Professor at the Australian National University's National Security College and an Honorary Adjunct Associate Professor at Bond University. She has a PhD from the University of Queensland and an LLM from the University of Cambridge, where she was a Shevening and a Pegasus Scholar. Danielle is particularly interested in the threat posed by social inequality and climate change, particularly on national security and human rights. She's also fascinated by the nexus between national security, the rule of law and social justice. Welcome, Danielle. It's terrific to have you here today. Hi, Gay. Hi, Meg. It's really great to be here. Thanks. Look, if we can just start with space, because that's one of your many, many areas of expertise, and despite what people think, space is not lawless. There are United Nations and other conventions regulating space dating back to the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. So how do we use space to advance our human rights? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because it's both existential and then very um, detailed on a micro level as well. And funny enough, the human rights legal regimes and the space legal regimes all came out of that post-Cold War period. So in a sense, they have a common genesis of thinking. And so space is very relevant to human rights for a number of reasons. Um, First, there's the sort of basic big picture idea that all persons have a right to benefit from scientific progress and scientific development. So there's a core right to development of all peoples that's relevant to what we're doing in space. Then there's more um, specific consequences. So, for example, 
um, we think about space as being a bit sort of sci-fi and and a bit sort of removed from our everyday lives. But in fact, every time we pick up a mobile phone, we're accessing space. And so space can be used, for example, to communicate. Once upon a time, someone in a natural disaster in a least or a less developed country would have had trouble communicating that to the outside world. The advent of mobile phones is a relatively speaking cheap way of communicating, has profound implications for the way that um, a peoples communicate with their outside world. And then even more tangibly, for example, uh, space and remote sensing technologies that are used in space are used to monitor, for example, natural disasters, uh, agriculture, which, for example, is related to the right to food and right to safety. It can be used for the delivery of humanitarian aid. It can be used to, for example, monitor the climate. Uh, And we all saw during COVID, of course, uh, the use of remote technologies in order to deliver education. So if you think about the Human Rights um, Project, you've got rights to education, rights to access to science and development, rights to communicate. Of course, though, with um, most things, most technologies, it can be a double-edged sword. So there are also threats to human rights posed by human activity in outer space. And the key one that comes to my mind, of course, is rights to privacy because uh, remote sensing technologies collect data here on Earth and so are directly relevant to the way that we experience our lives here on Earth. So there are privacy rights. And then the militarization of space or the weaponization of space um, does present dangers to our rights to safety and also um, the increased launch of satellites and space debris. You've probably seen in the media reports of the enormous amount of space debris up there um, do pose environmental, potentially environmental risks, and that's relevant to the emerging right to a healthy environment. So I have to admit I've never thought about space and privacy before. (laughs) It's never occurred to me that my privacy is being impacted by what's happening out in space. So this is really interesting to me. But you mentioned their militarization, which I want to go into a little bit. Clearly, there's some clear and practical applications of space technology that we're seeing now that are fantastic, like the mobile Mm. phone and everything else that you've mentioned. When I look around what's happening in the world today politically, there's a lot of conflict here on Earth. What do you think is the prospect of conflict in space? Mm. It's not unlikely, although I must say it's quite extraordinary if you think about the way humans are and, you know, we're capable of such beauty. Humans are capable of such beauty. I was thinking this the other day when I was watching on Netflix a fictionalised version of the true story of the Thai cave rescue Mm. and how people just came together and just this extraordinary act of human beauty and helping each other out. Um, But at the same time, we've we've always engaged in wars and conflict and wars are ugly. You know, we've seen the drone strikes recently in Ukraine and it came up on my social media, this picture of this pregnant woman who was killed in one of those. So this dual um, capacity of humans to be both beautiful and terrible, of course, also translates into the way we behave in space. So I think it's quite extraordinary that human activity has been happening in space for quite some time and we've not yet had, for example, a satellite destroyed in anger or an attack on the space station. And if you think about the International Space Station, which, by the way, sees 16 sunsets a day, I just think that's super cool. That's really amazing. (laughs) Super cool. That's super cool. (laughs) Um, The International Space Station, for example, in March this year, there was a US astronaut on there who needed to get home. And his only way of getting home at that time, he'd been one of the longest serving people in space, was on a Russian vessel. Now, we know what relations are like between the US and Russia right at this time in history, and he got home. 
He was on that Russian festival. There's actually been extraordinary cooperation in space if we think about what the stakes are. It's it's actually in some ways a success. And that doesn't mean that we need to um, not be vigilant about militarization of space because the reality it is it is used to gather intelligence that relates to national security and military adventures. It is. And you'll often have a satellite that's owned by a private company, for example, that is collecting data and it's called dual use, which essentially means it might be selling that satellite data to an environmental organisation that's monitoring the temperature of the planet. It might also sell data to the military. Uh, So there is that sort of capacity. And I guess I'd make the point too, again, going back to Gay's comment about space not being lawless, is the Outer Space Treaty, which you mentioned in 1967, actually contains an article that specifically says that international law applies in space. So therefore, international law principles around the use of force and the conduct of hostilities would apply in space. And each of the five main treaties on space, well, perhaps not each of them, but certainly the Moon Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty all make reference to the peaceful use of space and also all include reference to the fact that space doesn't belong to any one country and isn't subject to a claim of sovereignty or appropriation, um, i.e. a taking. And that's what makes it different from some other spaces in the sense that space is res communis, which is just a Latin for owned by everyone. You could say it's also res nalis and it's owned by nobody, but that seems a more pessimistic <laughs> perspective. I kind of like the idea that we all we all own space we or it belongs to all of us, right? Yeah. And that's quite analogous to the high seas in the sense that um, once you go beyond 200 nautical miles of a nation state's physical territory, it becomes high seas, so it belongs to everyone. The trick there, though, is that in spaces that are common, nation states or countries do have a sovereign right to explore and exploit natural resources in common spaces. Mm-hmm, yep. So there is a bit of a tension, and this is, I know I'm on a tangent, but this is related to the risk of conflict um, issue. Space has the potential for exploitation of natural resources. Um, some of the minerals that could be potentially found on the moon or can be potentially found in asteroids and meteorites are worth billions. So there's obvious commercial interest in accessing natural resources in space. And I think we can all accept the premise that competition over natural resources is a bit of a trigger point or a risk in terms of competition and conflict between nations. So there is risk in how we manage um, exploration around natural resources. Well, I hope we're able to um, push forward with the power of humanity and collaboration over commercial and military competition. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, the reality with space is it's such a complex and difficult and hard environment physically that if one of us messes with space, it really has issues for Mm. everybody. And there's just so much we don't know. In international environmental law, there's this principle called the precautionary principle and another principle called intergenerational equity. And that essentially says if there's a scientific unknown, you should err on the side of caution. And then intergenerational equity says um, try and keep the natural environment as much for the next generation as for yourself. So if we think about something like mining on the moon, and by the way, there are at least three countries that now have legislative regimes that would enable a company or contemplate a company, a private company, applying for a mining license on the moon. 
Now, it's very complicated and difficult. We've not done it yet. But there was a Japanese satellite, I think around 20, uh, a Japanese mission around 2019 that did extract a mineral from an asteroid and it landed in Australia. So it's potentially the technology is not there now, but it potentially could be. And, I mean, my personal opinion is I can't think of anything more insane than mining the moon when we don't know the implications that would have for tides for example, yeah. and if we think about that principle of intergenerational equity and precautionary principle, one would suggest that we tread very carefully. Um, but the rise of private companies in space, like to give an example, I think around maybe 2019, about 25 to 26% of the entire global space budget was government. Now, if you think about that, that's almost two-thirds of the space budget being generated by private companies, which creates really important issues around both human rights and accountability for actions in space because, um, not to bore you with too many technicalities, there are difficulties sometimes in attributing the acts of a company to a country for the purposes of legal liability. It's not impossible if they're acting on the direction of the state, right, or um, the state is in some way, they're a quasi-organ of the state in the sense that they're controlled or directed by the state. But, yeah, we've got so many private companies acting in space, not just Elon Musk but a whole, <laughs> whole heap of others as well. There's the advent of the space tourist. And then, I mean, these are all the rights that I've talked about are all consequences of human activity experienced here on Earth. But then you've even got questions about people's rights in space, so the rights of astronauts to be safe or to have food and there have been proposals that perhaps one day we may have settlements on Mars uh, and so then there's questions about the rights owed to those persons. Given that a right is inherent in a person, it's not earned. Dignity is basically the premise on which all human rights rest, the inherent right of dignity of all persons, and that doesn't go away because someone's outside territory. You know, legally a state generally only owes human rights obligations to people within its territory. But there is a legal principle that says those human rights can apply in, in the sense that a state may owe legal obligations around human rights to deliver or not interfere with human rights outside of their physical territory if that territory is under their effective or overall control. And so if we have space vessels or we have settlements or we have activity in space that is ostensibly under a state's control, there are really interesting legal issues about the obligation states owe to those individuals in space, whether they're their citizens or not. So are those legal issues, are the conversations being had on this vast array of significant issues in terms of commercialisations, in terms of settlements, in terms of tourism and in terms of mining and militarisation? So is the law keeping up? Are the UN conventions keeping up? I know that with the Antarctic, you've got people sort of constantly pushing the envelope on that, even though those conventions have been around mm. for decades, mm. uh, particularly on the mining issue and the scientific study. So is the law keeping up in terms of space? Yes and no. It sort of depends on your viewpoint about the adaptability of law generally, really, because I think I mentioned that Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty does say that international law does apply in space. And so if we go back to basic legal principles, most legal principles can adapt over time to face new challenges. Uh, we can think about um, you know, lots of examples around telecommunications and artificial intelligence where we take ancient principles 
and let you know in, on one level law is just a manifestation of social values and the social contract right mm-hmm. and so we can take those old principles and apply them to new scenarios in ways that aren't particularly difficult and so it goes back to the point we made earlier on space is not lawless we don't need necessarily a plethora of new laws to govern space there are five key treaties and there's international law and also some domestic law applies in space because a country's law can extend extraterritorially i.e. outside of territory. That that is a thing. On the other hand, there are very unique challenges and very new technologies that emerge that we haven't grappled with. And so those conversations are happening. So the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, for example, one of its deputy co-chairs is an Australian, uh, my sometimes co-author Stephen Freeland. And there are conversations absolutely happening about all these issues. So it's not they're not being ignored as such, but um, I think even that issue I just mentioned then about corporate accountability in outer space, my personal view, and I've argued this elsewhere, is that we actually need a specific legal regime and a specific tribunal that has jurisdiction over corporations to regulate their activities in outer space, mm-hmm. not not only from a human rights perspective but also from other sort of liability and, and convention perspectives because if there is, for example, just a collision we need a regime that can regulate corporations and not to get sort of too boring and legal on you, but under international law, there's not a common understanding of when a corporation is a national of one particular country or a person for that matter. It's up to individual countries to decide who is their national, whether you can have dual nationality. The rules around citizenship are largely left to individual countries, and that is true also of corporate citizenship. So I do think there are spaces, forgive the pun, (laughs) where we do need more law. But I also, but I don't think we need to rush to recreate recreate the wheel. I think there are um, long lasting legal principles, particularly around human rights law, that are um, applicable and translatable into space. Okay, so there's already these international legislations that are covering space that seek to balance the various interests, seek to protect human rights. Yes, there is, pardon the pun, some space for more um, thoughtful legislation here and, and some thinking. Um, bringing it back to earth for a second, from a legislative point of view, how do we, or a legal point of view, how do we strike a balance between national security and and the need for secrecy and protection around national security and human rights and the need for freedom and transparency? Mm. Well, the first point I'd make is that there are international laws around human rights, which For example, the International Bill of Rights is composed mainly by an international convention on civil and political rights, which is essentially called negative rights, i.e. freedom from interference of the state, freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of religion, fair trial rights, things like that. And then there's another convention, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which is more around the right to practice culture and housing and work and dignity and things like that. However, domestically, that's not necessarily the case all the way around. So just to take up that point that there are international law protections on human rights, my view is that domestic protections of human rights aren't as adequate the world round, and that's why the international regimes are important. But as a matter of Australian law, for example, international law is binding on Australia as a political entity in the international system, but it's not actually binding as a matter of Australian law. Uh, So... The only human rights obligations that bind Australia as a matter of Australian law, not as a matter of international law, but the only thing that Australian lawmakers are compelled to follow essentially is the Australian constitution. 
And the reason I make that point is because we don't have a bill or a charter of rights in Australia that's constitutionally enforceable. And we're the only Western democracy not to do that. We're the only country that's a democracy that doesn't have a constitutional bill of rights. And we're the only Western democracy for sure that doesn't. Now, that doesn't mean that um, in the absence of human rights that we don't actually enjoy uh, our human rights in Australia. There are many examples of countries that do have one that ha- where people enjoy less fr- rights and freedoms than we do in Australia as a cultural reality. Um, but I make that point because it's directly relevant to the question you asked about the relationship between national security and human rights. So I think we can all accept that human rights, rights to safety, right to life, right to freedom, uh, right to uh, protection from racial discrimination, sex discrimination, age discrimination, so on and so forth, are best enjoyed in a secure Australia. So national security does actually protect human rights in terms of safety. We only get to do these things and have our opinions and express our opinions because we're a secure state. So national security lawmakers and national security practitioners rightly ought to enjoy a long leash. However, in a system where we don't have a Bill of Rights, there are relatively few checks and balances on national security regimes. By and large, and there are, of course, exceptions, By and large, national security legislation tends to enjoy bipartisan support. Now, bipartisanship is a beautiful thing and I I encourage it. (laughs) It's great. Um, It's good that we're sensible and and talk to each other and that we're not just loyal opposition all the time. However, one consequence of bipartisan support is that you don't have the same public debate and contest of ideas about what we're doing. And in the absence of a Bill of Rights, in the absence of public debate, there are real questions around slippery slopes of that very real and unavoidable tension between human rights and national security. So places where that tension comes up, obvious examples might be freedom of expression, freedom of communication, and um, laws regulating what people can and can't report, for example. Uh, You're probably familiar with the ASIO Act. There's a section in that Act, Section 35P, which makes it a criminal offence to disclose information that relates to, and you can't see because I'm I'm doing this verbally, but I'm putting that in. Air quotes. Air quotes. (laughs) Relates to. That's a very broad idea, right? Relates to. Relates to um, a special intelligence operation. Now, you can understand why that's the case. The problem is, is that legislation, in my view, Reasonable minds can differ on this stuff. In my view, the fact that that legislation doesn't contain an exception for public interest, doesn't contain an exception for journalism in public interest, and doesn't contain exceptions, appropriate exceptions, in my opinion, for whistleblowing, is a problem. And we've seen this in recent times, for example, the Colliery Prosecution, So Bernard Collery was the lawyer of Witness K who disclosed information about Australia phone tapping in East Timor in order, ostensibly I understand, to get an upper hand in negotiations around national resources. Now, again, reasonable minds can differ on the legitimacy of that as being something that ought to be the subject of public debate. But, you know, there are genuine questions that if we're in a democracy and ultimately if we accept the premise that national security exists in order to protect democracy, there are legitimate questions about the public's right to know what our elected representatives are doing and how public money is being used. 
So I don't think, I, I think everyone would accept national security organisations and practitioners do need a long leash. However, it can't be a forever extending leash mm. because in itself that undermines the very principles that we're seeking to protect. Uh, in a way, the sunset clause helps in terms of containing it. So if it is a response to a particular situation, and we've seen this with mm. legislation, recent legislation, yes. then the sunset clause can actually contain it. Mm. But that's got to be invoked. Yes. And just going back to your, your comments, I know you're a strong advocate of the Bill of Rights. Yeah, yeah. And um, so why is a Bill of Rights important? And how do you think that there will be any tension between our national security legislation and advancing human rights should a Bill of Rights come into being? Mm. I think one of the most legitimate objections to having a constitutional Bill of Rights or a Charter of Rights is that you end up entrenching rights or crystallising or freezing rights in a particular moment in time which might not be appropriate in the future, for example, or that you unduly constrain the capacity of government to respond to what the electorate wants. And so one of the reasons Australia doesn't have a Charter of Rights is because the founders of the nation, as it exists now, I should of course acknowledge that Australia as a nation um, has existed for more than 60,000 years due to our First Nations people being the oldest continuous living culture on the world. So our, our country did not begin in 1901, but our constitution was enacted in 1901. And there was a deliberate decision, for example, to exclude the right to legal equality at that time. And this is not me being political or, or hysterical, but if you actually read the convention debates, the reason for excluding a right to legal equality was because there was a view that then that would mean having to give equal rights to non-white Australians, which was not what people wanted to do at the time. So it's not a very particularly proud history as to why we don't have one. But the other reason we don't have one is there was a belief in the power of representative democracy in the sense that if the people don't like what government is doing, they will vote them out. And that's more powerful, for example, than a standalone document. I think the problem there is that only works if you're in the majority and have the power to change power at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And also it assumes a level of literacy of public policy and human rights across the nation, which isn't necessarily always the case. And I don't mean that in a snobby way. To give you an example, when surveyed, 60% of Australians thought we had a Bill of Rights. And on occasion when asked to give an example, um, they referred to, for example, the right that, you know, to plead the fifth. <laughs> So, you know, oh, it's right. Like, okay, yeah, so right? not even so now. Yeah, human, <laughs> human rights literacy is coming from American television. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So one of the, one of the um, examples, so when I have this debate with students, for example, one of the common objections is, well, look at the United States. They embedded a right to bear arms at a particular moment in history when you had muskets that were very light. It probably didn't contemplate, you know, semi-automatic weapons and buying a 25-cent bullet from Walmart, for example, that's a problem. You can crystallise something in a moment in time that gets misused in the future. So my response to that is I actually really like the Canadian model. And the Canadian Charter of Rights um, has a, an array of rights set up around legal equality, fair trial rights, due process rights, uh, but it has a clause that essentially says that where there, it's in the public interest, a legitimate public interest in doing so, those rights can be derogated from where that derogation is consistent with the principles of a free and just democracy. So um, my conception of the need for a Bill of Rights in Australia would have such a clause in the sense that there can be exceptions to um, allow for national security legislation, for example, 
um, to regulate people's behaviours, but only where that is in the public interest to do so. Mm -hmm. So the common example is we're not completely devoid of human rights in our constitution. So, for example, there's an implied right to communicate politically, and that's because our constitution contains the words that the House of Reps and the Senate will be chosen by the people. And the High Court's held that those words chosen by the people implies that everyday persons should be able to discuss political issues because it goes to who they will choose to vote for. Um, and so there has been legislation, for example, regulating hate speech and persons who have been charged with hate offences or incitement offences have tried to challenge that legislation on the basis that it interferes with their right to communicate politically, yeah? And the court in that case says, no, there's a legitimate public interest in protecting people's safety and the measures taken to do that are proportionate so the legislation survives. So it's not like rights are absolute. No human right is absolute. Every right has to give way to another. My right to safety can clash with someone else's right to express their views about whatever subgroup someone belongs to, right? Uh, so I think that the tension between national security and human rights will always be there, of course. The national security community and practitioners do need to operate with a level of secrecy uh, and privacy, and that's completely understandable. But at the same time, you can't let national security legislation get to a point where it erodes the very thing it's trying to protect. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So I, I want to touch on that point around secrecy and privacy and your earlier point about the need for government transparency and oversight. We do have mechanisms in place. So I'll try to avoid the acronyms. We have the um, <laughs> JPCIS, so the uh, Joint Parliamentary Committee for Intelligence and Security. We've also got the Office of the Inspector General for uh, Intelligence and Security, the Office of the IGES or IGES. Um, we've also got freedom of information legislation. Mm. Is that not enough? Shouldn't we be trusting our institutions and our government to make sure that they are doing the right thing under these mechanisms? Yeah, absolutely. It's Those institutions are super important for watching the watchers, um, which always needs to happen. You know, you need to care for your carers and watch your watchers. That's sort of how it goes. That's how we protect ourselves, for example, foreign interference. interference. And transparency does have an element of national security protections in it. Um, because high levels of, of accountability can reduce chances of corruption and things like that. And absolutely, those institutions um, are really important and do exceptional work. I guess the comment I'd make about the um, Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, also trying to avoid an acronym, <laughs> is if you look at the size of that organisation 
as compared to the size of the national security intelligence community. I think there are legitimate questions about the capacity to be able to keep up, right? And then the other thing I would say and I would add to those institutions is our court systems. And even though it sort of sounds dry and boring and technical, the separation of powers as a system of government where we have our executive decision makers who are in many ways accountable to parliament who make the laws and then all are overseen in part by our court systems. And the separation of judicial power is really important. And if you think about it in a national security context, the separation of powers requires, for example, the the executive can't just detain people and prosecute people. We don't do off with her head anymore, right? We had Magna Carta. There was a thing. (laughs) And so the executive is accountable in some ways and aren't meant to do things that courts do. And courts should also, um, the independence and integrity of courts also needs to be protected by not asking them to do things that are policy or political. We need to keep those things very separate. And that's an important measure of accountability. But to answer your question, is that enough? I think it functions relatively well. But I think, again, going back to the Colliery case and the witness K prosecution, Boyle, the um, whistleblower from the Australian Tax Office, these are examples of where maybe it didn't work so well. And I think um, one really important aspect of democracy is a free press. And, of course, there are very legitimate reasons why sometimes national security issues can't be reported on in the media. There are very reasonable and and legitimate reasons for that. But I think the way that a lot of legislation works, particularly national security legislation, is there isn't enough protection for journalists where the information might be true and in the public interest. Uh, And so, for example, the right to a free press is a right that does come into tension with national security but probably, I think, in the Australian context requires more protection. I think there are legitimate issues too around detention and charge, access to legal representation, fair trial rights, due process rights, which sound really boring. Like people like sexy rights, you know, the right to a healthy and safe environment, you know, the right to life, the right to speech. But some of the most important rights is, you know, the devil in the detail. Did you have the opportunity to understand the case against you when you were undergoing legal proceedings? Did you have access to adequate legal representation? And sometimes that's not because we're trying to protect baddies, but we're actually protecting the institution and the system itself. Uh, The reason we have criminal defence lawyers, even for unpopular defendants, of course, is because we're protecting a system. We're protecting a system of democracy and accountability and fairness and equality in terms of even things like socioeconomic status, how, how, what kind of lawyer can you afford, that sort of stuff. How literate are you in legal proceedings? They're very intimidating. You know, I'm a lawyer and I find court intimidating, let alone if you're not. Uh, so I still think there's, there's gaps mm. that could be filled. And then the other point I would make is that charters of rights have a literacy uh, effect, which in a really subtle way can be a prevention measure. So I, I gave the example before about 60% of Australians assuming there's a Bill of Rights, but when asked to quote, they could only quote American rights. There's a reason for that. When you have a chart of rights, people know about them. Mm, mm. You know, our constitution, I think, begins with the word whereas, you are as the people. It's not super engaging for your everyday person, but an everyday person understands things like I have the right to speak to a lawyer, which you don't necessarily in Australia, right? Legislatively you do, you may not constitutionally, or I have the right to do X, Y, Z. There's a lot of assumptions made that we don't. And so when you have a charter of rights, it creates a literacy 
of expectation in your peoples, but it also creates a literacy in your lawmakers in terms of understanding what's at stake, because it's not necessarily always obvious. I think most people have good intentions when we're making national security legislation. Uh, I would say that's, you know, if not always the case and generally mostly the case, people are acting with good intentions. But there can be unforeseen consequences and having a Charter of Rights, I think, allows for a greater level of literacy when making law to contemplate where those exceptions might apply. Yeah. I want to add another consequence to this and that is national security agencies and the work they do not being reported invariably leads to either no press or negative press. Both the things are not particularly good, which leads to then a kind of, I think, negative perception of what the national security community and the work they do is about, mm. which then affects their ability to recruit new talent, recruit yes. um, diverse talent, recruit women, recruit people from um, culturally and linguistic minorities, affects the workforce, it affects their future ability to be able to actually do the job that they want to do. So there are a multitude of consequences of that. Yeah, and just listening to you, the words that popped into my head are social trust. And I think we've seen in recent years a little bit of an erosion around that, particularly um, in uh, during the management of the pandemic, for example, in some communities that were suspicious of government measures um, around vaccination regimes, to, just to give an example. But I think that's symptomatic of a declining trust in government and institutions. And I think that's a broader issue because it goes to social cohesion and it goes to the fact that social equality and social justice does actually ultimately become a national security issue because the more people are marginalised or feel isolated from their systems of government, whether that be due to a lack of transparency as to what national security agencies are up to or because they don't see people like them making those laws, for whatever the reason, uh, then you do get people who feel isolated from the country and that creates social risks. Social cohesion creates national security risks. We know about the reported risks from the far right now, for example, and it's. I think it's very easy when you see people who aren't cooperating with the social contract to sort of make assumptions about where they're coming from. But I think, you know, challenges like access to housing and growing socioeconomic equality do isolate people from their systems of government and from social cohesion. I think that in itself does create national security risks. So I guess that's a very long-winded way of answering your question. I say, yes, it is a social trust issue. And I'm not saying the answer to that is that we report on all national security mechanisms. Um, not at all. But I do think there's a place for an expanded public discussion and public contest of ideas around how we deal with perceived and otherwise national security threats. And I think that's particularly the case given the expanding notion of what we accept as being a national security issue. You know, the securitization of migration and asylum-seeking refugee policy, for example, um, the inclusion of climate as a national security risk, which of course is, is um, legitimate and understandable. Um, but rising climate temperatures has so many far-reaching consequences in terms of housing and food security and movement of peoples that you're, in theory, can now have national um, security and intelligence activities expanding into all those areas. And they are questions on which society needs to have an element of cohesion and cooperation on. Mm. And it... Um 
it, it reinforces the importance of having diversity of thought, not just diversity of demographics within the community, mm. not just outside of it. Yeah. Just going back to that, that notion of the expanding the conversation on national security issues, during COVID, the Australian people were engaged on supply chain issues, on a broad range. And as, you, as you've said, national security is in a way impacted on so many areas now in terms of the, the um, well, at the state level, at the local government level. It's, it's mm. multi-layered now. Mm. It, it has, it's filtered right through and it basically happened with COVID. So Australians are having that conversation amongst themselves on national security. So you say that we need to open up that conversation. I argue that they are ready. The ground is warm. They are ready. They're up for the conversation. So who should lead that conversation? Should it be the national security agencies? Should it be our elected representatives? Should it be the legal fraternity? Who should Mm. it be? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and I don't have a perfect answer for it other than my instinct is to say all of the above actually. Um, And I think, again, just listening to you then, one thing that occurred to me is I think, and I'm I'm sure you would both agree, but people aren't stupid. You know, there's sometimes this this idea that, you know, it's too complicated for the masses to understand. We need to speak in sound. But it's just not true. You know, I, I, I grew up in all sorts of places in Australia. I think I went to more than sort of 12, 13 schools in all sorts of places. I went to school from a caravan park in a tent for a little while growing up. Um, you know, I've lived in places that are lower socioeconomic areas with high levels of unemployment, um, where people left school early. People aren't stupid. Um, sometimes it's just a lack of effective communication by leadership to explain complex issues to people in a way that um, people respond to. Um, so I think I agree with you, Gay. People are ready and people aren't silly. And, um, of course, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of examples people could give me where people have been silly. We're all silly sometimes. Right. <laughs> but I think by and large people are able to have conversations about important issues where there's leadership Complex and willingness issues. to do Complex so. Issues. Yes. I can think of leaders on both sides from both major parties who haven't done this well, but who have also done it well, where they've had potentially an unpopular idea that hasn't been responded to that well, but have led um, a conversation, a national conversation, and done it anyway, and people ultimately respect and respond as a result. So the example I'm I'm thinking of um, is the Howard government's gun buyback policy, right? That, that That's a complex issue. There are people who agreed and disagreed, but I think genuine leadership um, requires having an open and honest conversation with the people and people will get on board. And I think we see that in organisations. People respect leaders who might not always make the popular decision but make a decision, stick to it and enable to provide a justification for it. I actually don't think the Australian people want to be pandered to because of um, a seat that it's at risk of being lost in the next election. People don't want to be pandered to uh, as a result of fo- uh, focused focus groups, for example, I think there are genuine conversations that people are able to have if they're given the resources to do so. And that, of course, will be enhanced by social justice um, uh, projects like education, housing, things like that. Um, Danielle, you touched on your origin story there a little bit, and I want to go back to that if that's okay. 
you you spoke about you know the, the variety of homes and schooling that you had that you experienced when you were younger. Um, I look at you now and I see a very confident, capable, intelligent, successful woman who has five degrees, including a PhD. You are such a success. How did that happen? Firstly, that's very kind of you to say so. Thank you. Um, how did that happen? Uh, well, I guess, you know, we live in a, a country where um, we have access to education and healthcare, even if you're not from a super wealthy family, right? So that's the first thing I would say is that um, social welfare matters. Safety nets matter because they allow you to break a cycle of um, disadvantage. And of course, there are, I can think of a million people on the planet who are more disadvantaged than me. So I'm not, I'm not pleading that at all. But, um, you know, my family, when I was growing up, didn't have a lot of money. There was an occasion when we lived in tents and caravan parks and I went to school from those. Um, my father died young as a result of mental illness. Um, so, you know, in the background, mental health is a really important issue to me, you know, particularly men's mental health, because men's mental health affects women's health and safety. <laughs> that, that's unfortunately just a reality. Um, and so my mother, at, at a certain point, raised four kids by herself. Um, I had a little bit of trauma after my dad died. I was a pretty naughty kid. I was like, you know, book smart, but naughty. Mm, I can relate to that. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I was suspended from school, for example. I had to have an interview to be allowed back into year 11 with my school. I think I held the record at Moolumbah High for the highest truancy levels. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite naughty. But I tell you, there's a few things that made a difference there. A, having a parent who cared and valued about education. And parents can care and value about education if they feel it's something that's available to them. So I think, you know, our public education and health sectors are essential. So A, she cared about it. B, I had some teachers who were just great and who went, oh, here's a kid who could be a bit bright given a bit of um, help. I think I frustrated them a lot because I would be quite naughty and back chat and truant but then top the exam. I think it was really quite annoying actually. <laughs> they had a couple who sort of took me on and, and got me on the straight and narrow and then ended up being the school captain. I went from sort of suspension to, 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 to school captain in a couple of years. Um, so I think it, it's about being in a society that values education, having access to parents at, that had um, value education, having an amazing matriarch in terms of my mother getting, um, you know, four of us sort of grown up and doing all right, um, and then uh, being in a country which has um, public education and, and great teachers. And I just want to say, of course, there are flaws in the system, but just a bit of a shout-out to to teachers who I think do um, a job that's really undervalued because everything we've discussed here, everything is premised on access to education. And it's transformative. Yes. And I think having good female role models as well. So before we started, we were chatting about Chief Justice Susan Kiefel and the opportunity I had to work for her when she was on the federal court. Um, I worked for a female minister once upon a time, um, you know, epic grandmother, epic mother. <laughs> um, and I think having, you know, really good wrong role models and also, you know, really supportive male mentors along the way as well. So it's, it works both ways. I think good mentorship, but also just... Um, you know, feeling the fear and doing it anyway. I love that quote. I say it all the time. Yeah. Or fortune favours the brave. Yes. And I think, you know, there's a point where we can always think about the reasons not to do something. But generally speaking, in my life, I've tried to eliminate the what if factor. And the what if factor says, well, you know, if I take this opportunity now, there's a potential I can always go back to where I was. But if I don't take it, I'll always wonder what if. And so I've always sort of done that. And then also I think... 
because I moved school so many times, it can be disruptive socially. But the other thing is I think it gives you fairly thick skin for being the new kid, which also mm. relates to doing your own thing. And so therefore, even as a young person, rather than worrying about what everybody else thought, um, I sort of had a strong sense of self in the sense of, no, this is where I'm going and that's how I'm going to get there, even if that doesn't, if, even if that requires me to give up things that are happening now socially or whatever. Uh, and so I think there's, um, I often say this to students, you know, in 10 years time, you may or may not know the people around you, but it's your degree, it's your education. Don't miss out on opportunities because you're worried about around you what people might think that you're up to it or you're not up to it or whatever you sort of you've got to make your own own story in that sense um but do so with humility because everybody has something to teach everybody you know those those kids I ran around with barefoot in the caravan park in far north Queensland at one point I learned an awful lot from them too yeah and then I finished school in the in the Far Northern Rivers again, which is a, a community that sometimes suffers from socioeconomic advantage, not not compared to some places in the world, but sometimes. And so, you know, just looping back, I think that we are capable of having complex conversations at all levels of society. Yeah, and I think culture is a big part of that too. And um, you wrote a piece that was published in the Lowy called Diversity and Inclusion, Australia's Global Aim to Walk the Talk. And in it you have this wonderful quote that says, fostering inclusion entails a highly complex long-term endeavour of qualitative change in organisational culture. I think culture is one of the themes that I keep hearing people talk about in terms of what's important, what is it that we need to change, What's your view on that? Well, the first thing I'd say is I did co-author that piece with um, Robin Perry and I think actually that may have been his sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so lest I unduly. Well, um, Robin, well done. It's a good credit, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll hand that one to him. Um, it was a co-authored piece. But I guess the point we were making there is that I think that the the project around accountability and meaningful public dialogue is twofold. You have to have formal mechanisms in place. So it's obviously clear I support a Charter of Rights, although I respect the fact that some people don't and that there are other ways to do things, of course. Um, but you need your formal institutions. You need your legislative protections and human rights. You need all these formal stuff. But you also need a culture of accountability, a culture of trust, a culture of equality. And I think there's this great quote from the Federalist Papers, which says something like, you know, if men and women, I'm adding the and women bit because it really annoys me when I read documents prior yeah. to a certain yeah. era where it's like mankind, I always change them to humankind. But, you know, men and women, um, uh, if men and women were angels, then you wouldn't need any sort of system of accountability, but they're not, so you do. And I think um, that goes to um, having a culture, an organisational culture, that acknowledges that we're not angels, that acknowledges we can't know everything. And often we don't know what we don't know. And so the point Rob and I were making in that um, piece is that it does require a number of things, but it requires an element of humility. And humility isn't about being self-deprecating or uncertain or showing a lack of leadership. You can be a very clear, strong, well-defined leader and still have humility. Humility is accepting that we can't know everything, that there's not one way of doing things and not idolising all the time the way things have always been done. Um, so having conviction and certainty and continuity and honouring traditions but at the same time acknowledging that there are always new ways of thinking about things and that we all look at society, including at national security issues, through a particular lens. And we miss things if we aren't humble enough to 
um, be in a society and organisation that's meaningfully inclusive, not just diverse, but meaningfully inclusive in terms of different types of thinkers for all the different reasons that people are different types yeah. of thinkers. Uh, and so it, we need to have an element of that humility, I think, in order to have a meaningful culture where that stuff can happen. In that piece, you also talk about the difference between diversity and inclusion. Mm. Now, the terms diversity and inclusion get bandied around a lot and the perception is in, in some circles that it is one and the same. So can you just talk us through what your interpretation is of diversity and what it is of inclusion and what in what, in what ways are they different? Mm. I think they need to go hand in hand, but I guess to simplify it, I would say diversity is about a variety of representation and presence but inclusion's about participation, and that, that's a meaningful difference uh, because it's not enough to have people at the table. They need to be able to speak at the table. And I think the quote we gave in the piece was, um, it's not just about being at the ball, it's about being asked to dance or just dancing just, anyway without dancing being asked. Dancing anyway, yes. exactly. <laughs> Don't wait to be asked. Don't, Don't wait, wait to be asked. Just dance like no one's watching you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Danielle, um, thank you so much for coming on the Winspod today. You are a solid example of the power of grit and tenacity and growth. You're a role model for people who are seeking change. Thank you. Keep it up. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. What an amazing guest. There was so much in there, Gay, about what Danielle said in relation to space, uh, human rights, trust in our institutions. There's just so much to digest. Incredibly thought-provoking. She was just a fantastic guest. I think for me, um, the, the two key standouts, one is about trust in our national security, and that for me is really food for thought about the importance of transparency and oversight. But on a more personal level, her journey from a childhood of adversity to a, now an adulthood of success um, is a real inspiration and I really like her attitude that you can do anything and having the right strong male and female role models around you is really important to being able to find yourself and really pursue that success. Yeah, absolutely. And also access to education and universal health, the fundamental pillars to, for people to succeed and prosper in life and uh, and the fact that she underscored that and her own experience underscored that was a really powerful message. Absolutely. So everybody, our next episode is a live recording here in Canberra. A number <laughs> of guests will be coming back to share more of their views and experiences and we cannot wait. I really appreciate you joining Gay and I today and until next time, thanks for listening. 